Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Coming up on today's show, depending on where you are in the province, you either saw a little bit of snow, maybe no snow, or record-breaking snow. It was quite a weather day. We're also going to talk today about a new policy that might affect Canadian manufacturers and exporters, and we'll also get an update on something that we don't talk a lot about when it comes to solving the affordable housing crisis in Canada. Let's talk about the weather situation. I'm, I'm getting pictures this morning still from people, you know, really icy conditions on Highway 1 in, in southern Alberta. There's some problems still in some areas. I mean, we saw a tremendous amount of snow in some places. I'm looking out the window here in Edmonton, and I'd say, I don't know, I'm going to say five, six, maybe seven centimeters at most. Um, and that was sort of what was on the car this morning when I headed out, maybe three or four centimeters, not much. Now, in some parts of Calgary, that's what they saw. In other parts of Calgary, they saw foot. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So let's get an update on what happened with Tiffany Lazay. Tiffany is a chief meteorologist with Global Calgary. Tiffany, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Having me. Good morning, Shay. So, I mean, just, it's really very, it, it, it pretty much depends entirely on where you were yesterday as to how we all saw some snow, but some people saw, like, record amounts of snow. Oh, absolutely. It, it depended on where you were just in the city of Calgary. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. So 20 centimeters, 22 centimeters on the north side of the city, the south side of Calgary, three, four, five centimeters. That's insane. Still, yeah, a huge range. And, and even across central Alberta. So this system was supposed to develop a little bit farther north. It was going to kind of clip Edmonton. It was going to clip Calgary and the bulk of the snow was going to be in west central Alberta. But because this Alberta clipper developed a little bit farther south, tracked farther south, it also stalled over parts of central Alberta, including here in Calgary, yeah. which that's why we had kind of that consistent heavy snow throughout the afternoon. So the way it tracked and the way it moved, it did change from what all the forecast models were saying. That's pretty classic. I won't lie to you. This is spring in Alberta, and an Alberta clipper kind of has a mind of its own sometimes. Well, that's the thing. I think we all know that we're going to get blasted at least once in the month of <laughs> April with a wicked snowstorm in Alberta. It happens every single year. Is this storm done? Has it moved on? Is it finished now? Oh, yeah, it's done. Most of it is in uh, Saskatchewan. It, it's tapered off quite a bit as it tracked east. So Saskatchewan is not going to see the amount of snow that central Alberta had. Uh, it, it's like I said, it kind of stalled. So it uh, snowed itself out almost all in <laughs> central Alberta, including northern Calgary, before moving on. So it's still some strong wind on the east side of our province, but the bulk of the snow, it's done, Shay. Good, good. Record-breaking, though, in some places. Who set records yesterday for snowfall? Was it just Calgary? Well, North Calgary, yeah. So that's just for April 19th. That's record snowfall yep. for that day. We don't have any records for areas like Airdrie or Cochrane, which I wouldn't be surprised to hear that they broke daily snowfall record for April 19th either. But the only official one I have is here in Calgary. So, And that's only North Calgary. Like I said, South Calgary, <laughs> they didn't break any records. <laughs> um, now, we're, we're, I was taking a look at the forecast for much of the province. It looks like everybody's... Mm-hmm 
you know, going to be at least slightly above zero for the rest of this week and warming up as we go into the weekend. So this snow will be gone, I think, by the time we get through the weekend, right? Like this isn't going to be lingering for any length of time. No, it won't. It'll linger for a day or two because the snow that we have on the ground is going to reflect that sunlight back up into the atmosphere. So we're not going to see that daytime heating that we would typically see if the ground was bare. So it'll reflect some of that heating back out. That'll cause it to linger for a couple of days. But once we get into the weekend, once we start to see those double-digit temperatures across the province, we'll see a little bit more of a rapid melt. But we want a slower melt. That's good news that it's going to take a few days for this snow to melt because... The soil, right? Our our lawns, our gardens, we want it to slowly melt so that it has time to really be absorbed into the soil and sink down a little bit lower before that sunshine hits it and evaporates that topsoil moisture because we're we're battling still with, with some drought conditions in central and southern Alberta. So a slow melt, I think, for farmers, for gardeners, for anyone with a yard should be welcome news. Yeah, absolutely. I'm getting a lot of texting. You know, oh, we need the moisture. This is this is so great. So last one for you, Tiffany. As a mm-hmm. weather expert, and we've been talking about it, everybody's talking about it today. Is this the last one? I mean, there's no way of knowing for sure. But for you, a meteorologist, when do you sort of think, okay, I made it through. We're, we're, we're out of that spring snowstorm vulnerability phase we're okay now what's the date for you well i won't say 100 percent we're out of the clear just yet because a it's alberta and b it's april april is one of our snowier months in both edmonton and calgary so i won't say that for a fact however by looking ahead at the long-range forecast it does look like we're going to start staying in those uh mid-teens low-teen temperatures as we close out April and move into May. So if we do see a couple more spring systems, it'll mostly be rain. And if we do see some snow, it'll melt quite quickly. Uh, But I'm not going to say 100% we're out of the woods just yet, because like that Alberta Clipper, yesterday it developed quickly and it changed quickly. So that's something we always have to keep in mind. I mean, I tell everybody, don't take your snow tires off until May long weekend, because we know that we can see snow uh, well into May. Now, I don't see anything on the forecast for the next few weeks. But it's Alberta. We know it's change, shape. <laughs> we all know. We all know, Tiffany, you are so right. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Tiffany Lizay, who is a chief meteorologist at Global Calgary. Does some work in Edmonton, too. Um, it's uh, May 24th. That seems to be the answer when you ask, okay, when, when, you know, when can you expect to be safe from this kind of weather event in Alberta. May 24th, and even then, I don't think it's a certainty. It can happen. It can still, you know, we can still see a snowstorm. Um, But I think, you know, I mean, that's what they tell you about the gardens. That's what they tell you about the snow tires. Don't do any of that stuff until May 24th. That's That's when you're safe. On Monday, the Biden administration announced uh, some new rules for the federally funded infrastructure projects in the United States. You know, a lot of money is being spent, right? Construction materials purchased for these projects must be produced in the United States. It's part of the Buy America plan. We've heard about that before. Obviously, that's caused a lot of concern for many, many Canadian companies who are you know, afraid they could be shut out of $1 trillion in infrastructure spending in the United States. That's a whole lot of money, and the economy is closely intertwined. So how big of a risk, how upsetting is this? We're going to find out. We're going to chat with Dennis Darby, who is the head of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Um, Mr. Darby, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. 
No, well, uh, good morning, and uh, you did. A, I listened to your introduction, and yeah, these are difficult times for sure. Yeah, definitely concerning, no doubt about it. Obviously, not the news that Canadian companies were hoping to hear. Um, let's just start first of all. Was it a surprise? We know this has sort of been an American position for a while now. Well, no, it's not a surprise. I mean, we've been uh, talking to the government and talking to our colleagues in the U.S. about. Uh, the Buy America or Buy American policies that th- this new administration, no, it's not as new anymore, yeah. had put in, had, had announced as soon as they were elected. And this isn't atypical. You know, even Mr. Obama years ago did something very similar when he was elected. Uh, it, it, it plays very well to the domestic market, for sure. Like you say, it's not the first time. We've seen this before with other administrations, and we've managed to navigate our way through it and, and make some headway and gain some concessions. So based on our previous experiences, um, is that possible here? Do you think there is a possibility for Canada to get some, some carve-outs and get some exceptions here? Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, I mean, let me start off by saying, you know, you know so Canada and U.S., our manufacturing industry and industrial sectors, you know, are completely integrated, and, and politicians on both sides of the border know that. You know, we, you know, we uh, we actually make things together. So we're not the focus of this action, and I think you know, I would I would suggest that the focus of Mr. Biden's action is probably China or other countries who dump products or or, or subsidize stuff that comes into the U.S. But that being said, you know, we don't want to get caught in the crossfire. And so uh, it's really important for Canada to continue to underscore how the, the fact that we do make things together. You know, we keep saying, let's buy, buy North American. That's probably the preferred situation. A lot of the work going on, as I understand it right now, is just trying to make sure that we, we are part of those waivers. Because there were some, there were some, uh, there, there were some words in the, in the announcement, even on Monday, uh, that would permit Canadian manufacturers or Canadian-based manufacturers to get some uh, some exceptions. Yeah, there's actually language in the bill, right, that, that allows for exceptions where necessary. So what's the process? How, how does Canada need oh. to make sure that uh, their voices are heard in this discussion? Well, uh, first of all, they need to keep doing what they started to do, and I think we've reminded uh, Minister Ng, our trade minister, uh, we've reminded Minister Freeland, we need to, Canada needs to make sure that it is on the radar screen in the U.S. I think one of the things that people, Canadians forget, 75% of everything we manufacture goes to the states. Two-thirds of everything we export goes to the states. Our relationship with them is more important to us than ours is to them, as you as you can imagine, sure. you know, because we're the smaller player, and so it's really important. Canada's down, you know, working through our, our consular um, uh, offices, working with, uh, with the administration to administration, and we do with our industry because at the end of the day, uh, many of the companies that could potentially get, you know, um, you know, excluded are actually American companies that have facilities in Canada. So we've got to make sure that you know this is this is important this is important work and among all the things we do uh in terms of you would say in terms of our global affairs uh our dealings with the US are incredibly important and so we're we're going to just continue to underscore that to our to our colleagues in Ottawa but there must be a recognition among the american companies that rely on canadian companies for components or for partner i mean they must have an understanding and they must be able to use their voice as well to say hey we can't do this without canadian contribution and that was the case back in 2008, and uh, and it will be again. But it, but again, it's something that they don't do in public. Yeah. Uh, from a from a political point of view, you know, uh, like I said, it's, you know, whether you're a Canadian prime minister or an American president, you know, saying that you're going to protect your home your home industry uh, is always a winner. And so the way we're going to do it is going to have to be you know, through the usual back channels and in a quiet way. But uh, but uh, but nonetheless, it's it's concerning, and uh, we're going to continue to. 
you know, to use all those avenues we can to make sure that Canadian manufacturers and exporters, who are incredibly important to our economy, you know, a third of all of our of our GDP is exports. We have to make sure that we don't get shut out inadvertently because the U.S., you know, rightfully has a lot of issues with some of those countries that, that dump materials into the U.S. Um, in terms of timeline, I mean, this all has to happen fairly quickly, right? Uh, yes. I mean, this is something, you know, he's, he's uh, pardon me, Mr. Biden has decided he wants to move this bill ahead quickly. Um, and so uh, time is of the essence. And I, I hope there's probably if I were the if I were uh, uh, the the uh, the prime minister, there's probably nothing more important than making sure that we are uh, inside the tent when it comes to uh, the, this huge infrastructure investment in the U.S. Um, Mr. Darby, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the insight. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. That is Dennis Darby. He's the head of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. We talked a lot on the show about um, the housing crisis, some people calling it a crisis. I mean, there is a report out I was just looking at this morning that says they're estimating the average cost of a home in Canada. The average cost of a home in Canada could hit $900,000 right away here. $900,000. Now you take Toronto and Vancouver out and it comes down a bit, but it's still incredibly high, right? And, uh, you know, the federal budget came out a couple of weeks back and it was a main talking point in there with, uh, you know, we're talking about $500 million in direct funding to try and tackle the problem. Changes to the way people can save up for down payments and all, all kinds of talk about how to get people into homes, how to get people into homes. But we've seen these kinds of things before and they haven't always worked out. So is there something new that we could possibly try? We've got an interesting discussion coming up here um, with a guest who says, yeah, there is definitely something out there that could work better than what we've been doing. And that something is housing co-ops. Joining us now to tell us about it, we have Dr. M- uh, Margaret Cohn, who's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Dr. Cohn, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Really interesting proposal that you're making here, and we're going to talk about housing co-ops. Let's just describe what that is and how they work so we know what we're talking about. Okay. A housing cooperative is a democratically controlled association that provides housing to its members. So the typical nonprofit Canadian housing co-op owns residential units and rents them to members at cost. And the membership ends when the resident moves out. Who owns it? I mean, what kind of cooperatives are being formed? So the cooperatives are owned collectively by the members, and typically the uh, residents are composed one-third of more low-income residents who pay a rent that's um, related to their income and subsidized by the government, and the other two-thirds pay what are called market rents. But these, in fact, are much lower than we typically see on the free market because there's no profit being extracted by a landlord. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You're just paying basically the cost. Um, Exactly. have, Have we seen this before? Has there been systems like this set up? And have they been in Canada? And how have they worked? Yes, absolutely. Um, First of all, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about how cooperatives work in practice, because it's important that they're managed by the people who live there. That means that residents elect a board of directors, and they also approve the annual budget. There's also a kind of culture of participation. Residents tend to help out with maintenance or administrative tasks or social activities. And that's a way to kind of build connections among people who live there, but also to keep costs low. 
So when we think about whether a housing program is effective, I think we're interested in a couple of things. One thing is whether it gets people into houses at a reasonable cost. But another concern is that, you know, you don't want to pay too much in government taxes to, to, to pay for that. And housing co-ops are very effective because they're able to provide reasonably priced housing at low cost. Okay, just help me out. I'm trying to wrap my head around how these work. Who buys the property? The co-op buys the property, correct? But um, do they build it? Do they buy existing ones? Do they get help from the government in terms of financing this to start it? How does that work? That's a great question. So most of these co-ops, these nonprofit housing cooperatives that we're talking about in Canada, they were started through government programs that were funded by the Canadian um, state, the federal government. In the 1970s, 1980s, the um, federal government stopped funding housing cooperatives in 1992. There also have been some provincial programs. So basically what they do is they give some seed money, some sort of like startup cost to kind of get an architect, right, maybe to purchase land. And then there's also um, mortgage-backed loans from the government, from the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation. So the people who live there basically pay off the mortgage just like you would when you purchase your house, but they do so together. Gotcha. Makes these sense. These were long-term mortgages that ran for 40 or 50 years, and most of them have now been paid off. Excellent. Okay, that makes sense. Is there an example where this is done far more frequently than Canada? I have to admit, this is one of the first times I've heard of this uh, being a system in Canada. Is it, is, it, is it more common in other places? It is more common. Overall in Europe, um, 10% of housing is cooperative housing, but in some places it's much higher than that. For example, in Austria, 40% of all housing in the country is cooperative housing, and it goes up to 60% in the capital city of Vienna. Vienna is often compared to Toronto because it's one of the uh, most livable cities in the world, but there they pay much less for housing than we do. So, for example, a one-bedroom apartment in a housing cooperative would cost less than 400 Canadian dollars, and that's not with the government subsidy. That's the actual cost. Now, that might surprise you, but think about if you bought a house 30 years ago, you paid off the mortgage. What do you pay month to month now? Not very much. Well, that's a privilege lots of homeowners have, but tenants do not have. So co-ops make it possible for lower-income people to have that same experience that homeowners have, which is that eventually those high costs like decline over time. So is it administered by um, the residents or is there government involvement? Like if, if I wanted to move into one of these co-ops, do I have to provide, you know, incomes? Like how does it work in terms of whether you're accepted into the co-op or not? Who has that power? So first thing to um, think about is that a co-op, it's not like applying to be in a sorority or a fraternity. They don't like select you based on you know, particular characteristics. However, since these were government programs that were set up in order to help ordinary Canadians afford housing, there are certain rules. And one of the rules is that there is this division between these so-called you know, market um, rate units and these subsidized units. So to qualify for a subsidized unit, of course, you do have to show some sort of income verification. And then you pay one-third of your income, and the rest of the cost is paid by the government. So the regular units is just like you know applying to be a member of Um, any other organization or applying to rent an apartment, you would apply. And then typically these are very popular um, types of arrangements. And so there can be waiting lists and you might have to wait in order to get a unit. But you just have to meet the basic criteria of, you know, having an income that you can cover the costs and, you know, possibly having references from previous landlords. Different co-ops have different rules. Okay. Doctor, help me understand this if you can, and maybe you can't. If I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, 
well, why the hell isn't every rental property in the world designed this way? Obviously, there's somebody who's opposed to this. I'm thinking it might be landlords who re- recognize that this could eat into their bottom line dramatically. But I'm just, why isn't this far more common? It, it, is there resistance? Is there blocks to doing this? Because if, you, if you're a renter, this seems like the only situation you would explore. I'm thrilled to hear you say that because I agree with you 100%. And I think most Canadians would respond the same way if they learned about this opportunity. So it is puzzling to me why we haven't expanded this significantly, given that we did this in the 1970s and 80s, and it was extremely successful. There were no defaults on these mortgages, and the costs are very low today. And there are, as I said, waiting lists of people who want to live in these units because they are very attractive places to live. So when you said, I had a new idea, I said, oh, I have to correct him because it's an old idea that's already worked extremely well in Canada. And the puzzle is really why the government isn't really going all in and investing in this wonderful um, model that we've already had so much success with. Yeah, it's very, very interesting, Doctor. I appreciate you walking us through it. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. That is Dr. Margaret Cohn, who is a professor of political science at University of Toronto. And yeah, I mean, if you take a look at this on the surface, there are some questions that come up, right? First of all, is this what we want government doing? Because ultimately, real estate is a free market, or it should be. It's not in 100% of cases. I understand that there's subsidized housing and all the rest. Um, But, you know, if you are in a position where the government suddenly says, okay, 50% of the housing we are going to um, provide financing for to co-ops that are going to see substantially lower rates, uh, rents are going to be much lower. You know, once the mortgage is paid off on these properties, it's just maintenance costs in terms of mortgage fees. Um, that doesn't work in in the private sector, and I can see why there would be opposition there. So, is that is that too much government interference? Is that having the government too much involved in what is essentially a free market system? Although, as I say, we do have some government involvement in housing for sure already. So, uh, I don't know. Would this system work? Is this a way to sort of get? people, you know, into more affordable housing. We talk about affordable housing so much in this country and have a hard time tackling it. Is this a solution? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.